on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach. My name is Sally Rugg, and some of the things I say in the podcast may or may not represent the view of my employer. It's up to you to guess which one is which. Hey, Sally, how are you going? If you take everything I say on this podcast and take the first letter of the first word of each sentence and line it up, it spells out a cryptic message. So it's like one of those, and I saw it again, what movie did I watch the other day where oh, Deutschland 83, which is this fantastic series on stand, which is made in Germany about the Cold War, and you had to decode a message. You're given a book, you get the, the cipher, and you've got to go through the book and look through which page, which number, which letter, and then write out what the message is. Is that what it is now? Yeah, that's what this podcast is. It's, it's me spelling out. Help! Help! (laughs) On the job, thanks everybody for being here today. We're going to have a chat about mental health at work. It's such an important issue because particularly, it has been, always has been, but we're talking about it more and more these days because we're finally getting to a point where we understand that physical injury, which manifests itself in a way we can see, is important, but mental injuries and stress and those sorts of impacts are not so visible and we haven't come full speed on how to deal with them. But there's a new approach to this, which is hopefully going to be written into law, which will allow people to have further protections when it comes to being looked after in their workplace when it comes to their mental health. You know, if all goes to plan, and we're going to hear about it in a moment, this will be, you know, a really good top-down solution. But I also have sort of, I'd like to think, pioneered a bottom-up solution to sort of raising awareness about mental health um, and how it is actually part of a worker's sort of entire health, their physical health and their mental health. And so what I do is I take sick days for mental health reasons and I will quite explicitly be like, I need the day off tomorrow, I need a mental health day. And so I say that to my employers and all of my team know that they can come to me and say, oh, I need a mental health day tomorrow. And it's just my little sort of guerrilla way of sort of raising awareness, I suppose, about the fact that, you know, if you are – stressed and distressed or feeling anxious or whatever it might be, you're actually not able to go to work or you might force yourself to go to work and compound that feeling into what could develop into like an actual injury. Or you'll feel judged if you do take the day off that somehow you're not resilient enough, you're not committed enough, uh, you're just a malingerer, all of those sort of negative aspects towards acknowledging that you're struggling with your mental health because you're at work. Getting past that now to a point where we go, that's important that we acknowledge that Sally, for instance, is suffering that and we need to look after her. So your employer's been pretty good about you saying, look, I quite honestly just need a mental health day to, to get myself together and feel better about things. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I don't know, it's just sort of something that I've been modelling and encouraging for such a long time now that I think other people within the company I work for are sort of like quite enamoured by the idea and it's like, oh yeah, it's the day after someone's funeral. I, I need that day off, you know, that sort of thing. Well, we need more of that in workplaces and it's not always the case where people work that that's the case. And that's why we need laws which spell out very clearly what are called psychosocial hazards that are regulated, that acknowledge that in certain circumstances people's mental health is under threat or is being damaged. And that's what we're going to talk to Liam O'Brien about, Assistant Secretary at the ACTU. On the job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Francis Leach, Sally Rugg with you. Sally, one of the things that would make everyone's working life better would be if we had an understanding of the impact of mental health in the workplace and its importance 
to have a workplace that makes you feel valued, protected, and is cognizant and aware that mental health is a huge part of people's working lives. And we're still a long way away from that. Yeah, it would be great in terms of sort of a duty of care to your workers, making sure they're okay. Um, But also like to take the more clinical view, like also in terms of productivity, right? Like if someone is injured on the job and that injury is like stress, for instance, which is a very real thing, like that's not going to be good for your workforce. So yeah, really interesting stuff around mental health. Well, there's a move afoot at the moment uh, driven by the Australian unions and a number of organisations, including particularly a number of academic organisations and the Black Dog Institute and Curtin University and Deakin University and others to try to push the government, the federal government and state governments to have uniform work health and safety laws around the country that incorporate a serious suite of laws that deal with mental health as a work hazard. Liam O'Brien is Assistant Secretary, one of the Assistant Secretaries of the ACTU, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, and he's also the expert within the union movement on occupational health and safety, and he's back with us on the job. G'day, Liam. How are you going? G'day, Francis. Hey, Sally. Hi. Thank you for being with us today, mate. I was reading the background to this joint statement that's been put out by the list of groups that Francis has just mentioned. And one of the things I noticed that I want to pick your brains about is that there's this like a big decision around mental health and work, uh, workplace health and safety laws coming on the 20th of May, but the process that will lead to that decision to me looked totally alien. It's like six ministers will meet and they'll, they need, no, nine ministers and they need six votes and it'll all happen under the blanket of darkness and then they'll whisper into a jar. So can you talk us through what this, who's making this decision around mental health provisions and work health and safety laws and how is that decision being made? Yeah. Well, look, it's a really good point, Sally. So forewarning for your listeners, like we're going to go full nerd on, you know, how laws are reformed in this country. But you're right. It's not a, it's not a normal process. Um, when it comes to reforming laws in favour of workers, they generally never are. You know, there's lots of barriers that get thrown in front of us. But as your listeners will know, work health and safety laws are actually the domain of the states and have been since federation. So states are responsible, or states and territories to be clear, are responsible for implementing work health and safety laws, not a power that's been referred to the Commonwealth, clearly sits with the states. That being said, since 2011, we have had a harmonised system of work health and safety laws where essentially we have this model work health and safety act that is then committed to be implemented by the states and territories across the country in as close to identical form as possible. This is generally seen as something that's good for business, but also good for workers because we have a consistent application of the laws across the country. That being said, there are some nuances. Victoria and Western Australia are not technically harmonised. They agreed for different reasons back in 2011 not to harmonise. In the case of Victoria, that was supported by the union movement because we did not want to see laws that um, potentially provided lesser rights for workers. That being said, the laws are not that different. So in Victoria, the model laws are not significantly different to the Victorian laws. And given the great work of the movement in Western Australia in the last 12 months to bring the Western Australian laws up to what we would say are model law standard, if not actually going beyond them, the differences there aren't too great. But the process for reforming them is not easy. So if we have an agreed set of model laws, then in order to reform them, it requires two-thirds of ministers, including the Commonwealth, to agree to make any particular change. So that's the 
I suppose, the threshold for winning change. And it's held us back a little bit, I'd say, in the past. But um, we're hopeful with this meeting next month that we can bring about some serious reform to the laws, which is long overdue. And so the model laws is sort of like, they're not automatically applied at a state level, but so two thirds of this group of state ministers and a couple of feds vote. And then there's this is the model, and then all the states are like warmly encouraged to apply. Yeah, apply it's them. um, there's an agreement called the Intergovernmental Agreement Agreement on Work Health and Safety, and the states have committed that any changes that are made will sort of dutifully be implemented across the country. Now, you know, it has not been an easy process, and indeed, in the very rare occasions where we've won some improvements, it hasn't been uniformly applied, and we do fear that out of this process, if we do win changes, it'll still be a hard slog in some of those states, which, as I'm sure your listeners know, in places like New South Wales, South Australia and Tasmania, where you have um, some pretty conservative governments that have not necessarily been the friends of workers, it could be difficult to win those reforms. But all the best intentions, it is definitely the desire of all states and the Commonwealth that we have uniform laws. So our effort um, as a movement is very much focused around winning best practice. So we want the, the best laws. We don't necessarily commit that we have to have national sets of laws. We want workers to be covered by the best set of laws that provide protections and rights to workers to ensure healthy and safe work. And to the extent that we can populate them across the country, then this process is good for us. One of the elements that you were working really hard to have implemented is around psychosocial hazards, which are, I guess, the things that we would identify as a threat to mental health. Currently, is there a huge gap in our work health and safety laws in this area? And does it vary from state to state? Have we got wildly varied approaches to this? Yeah, look, there is a massive gap. And I suppose the best way to describe the situation with regards to our work health and safety laws is they're set out in a pretty simple to understand framework. We have a a Work Health and Safety Act, which places an obligation on duty holders. So not just employers, but anybody that's conducting a business. So it could be you as a private individual conducting a business in which, you know, lots of different contractors may come into the business and work, but you have a duty of care to ensure that workers and others that come into your workplace or engage with your business, um, that you ensure their health and safety, so far as is reasonably practicable. Health is broadly defined as including both your physical health, but also your mental health. So at a, at a very high level, there is what we would describe as inequality there. Then the way the framework of our work health and safety law steps out is it then includes a whole range of regulations. These are standards, essentially that require duty holders, so those people running businesses, to identify specific risks in their business and then control them in a very specific and effective way. So take some of the ones that everybody would deal with, things like manual handling. So if you're running a business where your employees or workers are expected to undertake manual handling, then there is a specific regulation, i.e. a standard and a procedure that you must follow that identifies risks and seeks to control them. Equally, working at heights, working in confined spaces, things that in particular in blue-collar industries they'll be quite familiar with. But these are all physical hazards. In fact, there's in excess of 20 of these regulations that clearly step out for businesses, what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to do it, and they're enforceable by regulators, i.e. work safe or safe work inspectors. Uh, Workers can enforce them by their health and safety reps. They can put pin notices and other things on them. But again, they're all physical hazards. There's nothing 
nothing anywhere that says, here is how you manage mental health hazards in the workplace. And not surprisingly, you know, for 30 or 40 years since the essential, you know, origins of this framework of laws has been in place in Australia, we've done really well at reducing physical injury and indeed death. Still happens, it still happens way too much, but done very well at reducing physical injuries. Not surprisingly, mental health injuries are on the rise and they are the fastest growing compensable claim, which is really just a small fraction of people that are actually injured, people that put in a workers' comp claim, are really you know, going through the roof. And that's because there is this massive gap at the regulatory part, which says there's no real obligations on employers to specifically identify mental health hazards in the workplace and address them. And what are some of the industries that are seeing huge swathes of the workforce experiencing mental ill health because of their working conditions? What's not surprising in some respects is that we see this uniform across industry. This is not a white collar, I work in an office type experience, although there are some um, services industries that are probably uh, more dominated by mental health hazards. In fact, we see it across the board. We see it in construction. We see it in manufacturing. So in those industries where physical hazards are also quite dominant, we also see significant rise in mental health hazards and injuries across the board. But if you wanted to sort of take some sort of stereotypical, you know, mental stress or mental health hazards, you know, let's think about just work intensification. You know, back in the last century when work was intensified and we're all doing manual labour, generally that presented a range of physical hazards. Today, workloads in particular in service sectors, it's presenting in the form of mental health hazards. So mental stress, burnout, workloads, all of these things are things that I think we see across the workforce, but you again see very specifically in service sector industries, finance, clerical work, administration. Those are the industries where we're seeing really high rates of mental stress and burnout. Liam, is there a problem in that because physical injuries manifest themselves in a way that we can see and people present with uh, you know, a problem that you can identify, that there's still a scepticism within business and I guess in some workforces as well, that mental health is a thing and that those injuries yep. are legitimate and it's still a fight that we have to have? Or it's like a private thing. That is exactly the challenge. There's a few problems with this. So I talked about manual handling before, and there's a real analogy across to manual handling. So unlike a lot of physical injuries, it happens like that. You see it, it's a hazard, it causes an injury, it's instantaneous. Mental stress, bullying and harassment, they're not single events generally, although they can be. You know, Your exposure to occupational violence and aggression can be specific to a moment in time where you've experienced it. But things like workloads, burnout, things that happen over time. So the first problem we've got is that these are not you know, your typical sort of hazards. You know, you can't pinpoint a moment in time, address it, control it, and move on. The second thing you rightly point out is the way workers perceive mental health. One of the biggest challenges we've had as a movement, and we're running some really interesting campaigns, particularly our initiative around Mind Your Head, which is a workplace campaign focused at preventing exposure to mental health hazards. So using that really simple safety framework about we want to prevent injuries rather than supporting workers who are experiencing mental ill health. The biggest problem we've got with this is that workers see mental health as very much a personal issue, something that they bring to the workplace. And often it's characterised as um, you're not resilient enough, you, you can't deal with the stresses of normal working life and you just got to toughen up and deal with it. So there are a whole range of challenges that unions face in terms of trying to overcome this in the workplace. So you know, we think the regulation is a really good signal to workplaces that actually mental health is 
a work health and safety issue that we should be fundamentally focused around preventing mental ill health. That is good for not just businesses. I think you started off this segment talking about you know, productivity. There is a massive loss to business in terms of lost productivity from both absenteeism as a result of mental ill health, but also presenteeism, people that are at work struggling with mental health issues that are not as productive as they would otherwise be if they had a you know, psychologically safe workplace. Can I ask you about the specifics of the areas that you've identified as so- psychosocial hazards within the workplace? And are they going to be specified within any legislation that you, know, you can say that this particular circumstance is a psychosocial hazard? So absolutely, we want them to be specified. That's the purpose of the regulation is to actually require those that conduct businesses to specifically identify what are now well-established across the world, bearing in mind Australia is an outlier here, most of the developed world has already introduced psychosocial hazard regulation that requires businesses to identify them. But let's talk about some of the common ones. We've touched on a few of them here. We've talked about workload being able to identify what are unrealistic expectations in terms of workload. That could be in terms of the hours that are taken to do it, but also just the access to resources to be able to fulfil the task. It could be demands, so job demands, having either high job demands, ones which are extremely complex, again, with limited resources and assistance to perform the task, or also really low job demands. If you have a boring, mundane, repetitive role that is not providing you with much, if any, mental stimulation. That does present significant mental health challenges to your work. Equally, and I touched on this before, exposure to occupational violence and aggression. Now, violence is a physical hazard. You know, if, if somebody engages in violence in the workplace, it, it manifests itself as a physical hazard. But aggression also is a psychological issue. And we have thousands of workers every day that are exposed to violence and aggression in the workplace. Everything from frontline health workers who are working in hospitals, dealing with patients with various challenges, right through to bank workers who are dealing with, you know, aggression and insults from customers. Um, These are the sorts of things that we say business should be required to identify. And like with any other hazard in the workplace, physical or mental, they should be required to identify and apply controls that seek to eliminate, if possible, or mitigate if necessary. Do you think that me sneaking up behind my team when they're working at their computers and shouting boo really loudly behind them, like do you think that is one of these psychological, psychosocial stresses or do you think that's just fun workplace banter? <laughs> um, well, Sally, I'm sort of glad I'm, I'm not in the same room as you at the moment because um, it would be annoying. I'm not sure that it manifests itself as a hazard. And I think, you know, it's interesting. We've seen some of the the sky's going to fall in from business about this. We're trying to regulate behaviours. It's a bit, you know, nanny state. And absolutely, that's not the intention here. I think what often gets lost about this debate also, in particular, it manifests itself in the sexual harassment debate, which is employers often turn around and say, well, look, I'm not responsible for Sally and how she sort of behaves in the workplace. And, you know, you can't hold me to account. What are you going to do? You're going to find me because Sally's running around being a bit of a... My employers um, do not say that. <laughs> they no, sure they feel that my behaviour is their responsibility in the workplace. But I think, we, and, and, and I don't want to uh, say, what you're talking about is, is fun workplace banter, but it's also about, you know, if we extend it, it's about trying to regulate the behaviour of individuals. And we are trying to regulate behaviours, absolutely. We are trying to say that there are behaviours that are acceptable in the workplace, 
and there are behaviours that are unacceptable in the workplaces and business should put in policies and systems that ensure that. And the best example is sexual harassment. You know, we've seen over the last few weeks this raging debate about sexual harassment in the workplace and inevitably the bosses and some conservative commentators fall back on this argument, well, I just want to be a sack, you know, those that perpetrate sexual harassment in the workplace. And actually that's not how the health and safety system seeks to work. What we're trying to do is eradicate the behaviours. So this is not about targeting individuals or giving bosses power to sack workers necessarily. It's placing obligations on them to address the causes, you know, the underlying causes of mental health stress in the workplace. So putting in place policies that says, you know, I'm not going to stop you running around saying boo, but that you engage in a respectful way with your colleagues. That's the sort of stuff we're talking about. The ACTU says you can run around and distract your colleagues as as often as you'd like. (laughs) There's some industries where the cultures themselves are based on a form of bullying or hazing or uh, a sort of extremity that is part of proving your worth. Say, for instance, being a doctor and expected to be an intern doctor, your first year and you're expected to work 48 hours, 72 hours and not complain. Mm. How hard is it in those particular environments where that stuff is seen as a mark of your capabilities and the mark of your commitment to the job? How hard is it going to be to shift that? Well, very hard if we don't have a set of rights and laws that essentially start to force businesses to do this. You mentioned doctors before and you know I note that and here in Victoria, we've got a huge issue in terms of how young doctors are engaged in the workplace, asked to do extreme hours, many of which are unpaid. But I mean, we also reflect on, you know, just what we've re- what's been revealed about the federal parliament and just how psychologically unsafe that workplace is. What all the research shows us is that when it comes to productivity, when it comes to output from these businesses, is that intervening to make work psychologically safer to implement policies and practices which eliminate workers' exposure to psychologically unsafe work practices is not just better for everybody, but it substantially increases productivity. Now, there's figures out there that say for every dollar that's invested in mental health interventions in the workplace, businesses receive about a $2.30 return. The problem is, is that if that's the case, why aren't more of them doing it? And the reason is, is that most businesses will not do things unless there is a regulatory compliance obligation to do it. So when when people sit down at the board table, it's taken from a lens of sort of risk management. You know, what are the consequences for us not doing it? So we would say that regulation is absolutely needed to drive change here. But the outcome is one that is best for everybody. Everybody benefits from a psychologically safer workplace. They do indeed. Liam, thank you very much for being with us. So just step us through what happens next with this uh, this process. Uh, there's a meeting coming up later this month in May uh, where the state ministers will sit down uh, with, the, with the federal government and you need to get, uh, a, I guess, a quorum of six of the state ministers to agree to this model legislation and then uh, that's a, a step closer to having this legislation implemented at a state level. Correct. So this is one of about 34 recommendations that arose from the review of the model laws conducted by Murray Boland. All 34 recommendations have gone to Work Health and Safety Ministers and they will meet on the 20th. And if six out of nine of them agree to each of these recommendations, then they proceed and we'll start drafting a regulation. But it also includes, and I know we've spoken about this before, you know, issues like industrial manslaughter, you know, better rights for workers, health and safety reps. So the the you know, the mentally health aspects really cover off one or two of the recommendations, but they are extremely important. Um, so, you know, we're hopeful that we've got 
six votes for anybody out there that's done the simple maths. We've got five Labor states and territories, which means we need to flip one of the Libs and we need to hold all of those Labor states and territories, which is never a guarantee. But we are hopeful. Obviously, there's been huge attention around mental health, in particular off the back of COVID and just how challenging work has become for people. I would like to give you a bit of a preview of something, though, which we're going to be releasing a report that will start to step out some of this stuff. But what it also shows is just in the 12 months leading into COVID, we saw close to a 16% increase, the biggest increase ever recorded in terms of mental stress claims, and a 12% increase in relation to harassment and bullying in the workplace. So these are I'm not kidding you, the you know, fastest growing injury types in workplaces. And those are just a fraction. As we all know, workers' comp when it comes to mental health injuries, very hard to get claims up. These are just a fraction of the actual injuries that are occurring. Important work to do and really important laws to see passed. Liam, thank you for being on the job again. Thanks very much. Liam O'Brien there, Assistant Secretary of the ACTU and the uh, expert within the Union Movement on Occupational Health and Safety Issues on that uh, model legislation that hopefully is going to revamp occupational health and safety laws. And we were talking particularly about mental health and safety in the workplace. You are listening to On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rung. There he is, Liam O'Brien. He's now made two appearances on on the job, which I think makes him clubhouse leader. Have we had anyone else who's been on twice yet? I think he might be. He might be our first returnee. I might be doing someone a disservice. I don't know. Uh, what about our historian friend? Oh, Dr. Liam. In Dr. fact, if your name is Liam, yeah. you get to come on twice quite <laughs> clearly. I'm really excited about this vote on May 20. I really hope it goes ahead. But I think also in the meantime, it's good to just have these sorts of conversations about mental well-being in the workplace and how we have a responsibility as staff members, but also I think as colleagues and as managers, if we're in management positions, to have this at the front of our minds. Yeah, and to have that culture and that approach to it with a level of transparency and honesty and with each other about it, if you're not feeling well, not to feel like you can't actually talk to your colleagues about it and you're not going to be judged, that they're there to support you and they will be able to help you find the path to make you feel better and get better as well. And that's reciprocal. That's that reciprocity in in the workplace where people do acknowledge that mental health is really precious to look after. And once we start doing that with one another, uh, then we'll be in a much stronger position to make sure that it's just part of everyday life in the workplace that we look after each other. Hey, if you love the podcast, give us a review. You know, I know, I know, write to Rolling Stone magazine, give us a review there. I don't care. Now, what we really want you to do is review us in, on your favourite podcast app, wherever you're listening, because it helps other people find the podcast. So if you know that you love this and you're listening to us regularly, give us your five stars, give us your review and uh, help us uh, find more people who are interested in the issues we're talking about, Sally. And we'll be back before you know it with more On The Job. We will. It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Bye-bye for now. Bye.